Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Well, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening uh, once again with step number seven on joy making sorrow. And we are on paragraph 66 towards the bottom of the page of 119. And, uh, and then we'll be moving on to his discussion of anger and then the virtue of meekness. Uh, another beautiful step ahead of us. So, paragraph 66. Tears caused by fear bring protection with them, but tears produced by love, which has not attained perfection, as many happen in the case, may happen in the case of some, are easily stolen away, unless perhaps the memory of the eternal fire, when active, should kindle the heart. And it is surprising how much safer is the humbler way in its season. And so, you know, outside of the perfection of uh, the virtues and freedom from the passions, that uh, tears uh, can uh, begin to fall away in terms of the, the fruit that they bear in our lives, or we can find ourselves being drawn uh, into pride. And so to be aware uh, of our sinfulness and certainly being aware of the judgment to come, John is telling us is actually the safer path for us uh, to be aware of the, the ways that we fall short of the grace of God and where conversion is needed, that the tears produced there uh, is actually the better path for us uh, because otherwise we can fall into a kind of delusion and we've been warned about this before, that while tears can be a great blessing and cleansing to the mind and the heart, uh, there also can be some dangers with, with them. That it's not simply, as we've seen, uh, a kind of emotionalism, but rooted in true compunction, uh, true sorrow for one's sin. And uh, so the safer path then is the humbler path for us. The, there are material substances which dry the fountains of our tears, and there are others which produce mud and reptiles in them. From the former, Lot had illicit intercourse with his daughters, and from the latter, the devil fell from heaven. And so the little footnote is actually very helpful here this evening at the bottom of the page. So the materials that dry up tears uh, would be in abundance of uh, uh, food and wine that uh, would lead to drunkenness or, or gluttony. And here he's referring to Lot's sin. And then the certainly the, the second uh, uh, one would be the, the devil's cause of, of, of his fall, which would be pride. And so these are the things that can uh, dry up the fountains of our tears, that unless we are watchful of heart and certainly of our appetites, and most certainly of, uh, of pride, that again, tears can be something that don't endure or can lead us into greater spiritual danger. Our enemies are so wicked that they turn even the mother of virtues into the mother of vices, and those things which make for humility, they make into a cause for pride. Frequently, the very setting and sight of our solitary dwellings are of a nature to rouse our mind to compunction. But Jesus, Elias, and John, who prayed alone, convince you of this. I've often seen tears provoked in cities and crowds to make us think that crowds do us no harm and so draw us near to the world. For this is the aim of the evil spirits. So interesting that um, that he's the evil one, and we will come be coming to this a lot here in the coming steps. Uh, the kind of trickery that is involved here that can even use the mother of virtues, humility, uh, to to draw us into sin. So that one can become emotionally moved uh, by the sight of one's hermitage is saying here, or a place of solitude of great prayer, uh, immediately one can begin to be struck by um, compunction because one, there's no distraction there and one becomes ever aware of one's poverty and one's sin. Uh, but 
having tears within the city can lead to this kind of uh, illusion that in the midst of distraction and the distractions of the world, that the tears that would be produced would be uh, from this, this deep sense of one's sin. And more often than not, it's because of the, the kind of false self-esteem that they give rise to, that one begins to see oneself as spiritual and think one is seen in such a way by others. And uh, so solitude, uh, you know, certainly in the eyes of John and many of the monastic writers uh, would be important in setting aside the kinds of temptations that we would often be drawn into within the world, that we have to, in a sense, show even greater care uh, and watchfulness over our hearts, that we aren't drawn into this kind of pride, uh, to want to be seen as holy or to see ourselves as holy. And, um, and especially in our day, and we've talked about this before, that there is this tendency to talk about spiritual things, even the most intimate things in regards to one's relationship with God in a very public forum. And not just to talk about the spiritual life as we are doing here, but to share you know, the movements of one's own heart or the passions that one struggles with in particular or religious experiences uh, that one has had. And um, there is, you know, a kind of danger with that, you know, certainly of calling one's desire for God or pride, uh, or again, that one could be led uh, into a kind of delusion because of it, uh, thinking oneself uh, to be in a greater position spiritually than what they, they really are, simply because they're able to produce tears in a public forum or have had certain experiences. One word has often dispelled mourning, but it would be a wonder indeed if one word brought it back. So, you know, a, a word spoken, say, for, for example, in anger towards another, which is what we're going to be talking about next, can dispel uh, the mourning and the labors that have led to, to, the, to such mourning very quickly. You know, when we direct our aggression and anger towards others and we, we lose that virtue of meekness, uh, then what we've worked so struggled for for so many years can be lost in an instant. Whereas he says, you know, it's doubtful that one word is going to make it emerge again. Uh, that, you know, things often can't be taken back once they are said. You know, and once a person's heart has been stung by our wrath, that undoing that uh, and the pride that is often behind it is a very difficult thing. And finally, number 70, when our soul leaves this world, we shall not be blamed for not having worked miracles or for not having been theologians or not having been wrapped in divine visions but we shall certainly have to give an account to God of why we have not unceasingly mourned. This is the seventh step. May he who has been found worthy of it help me too, for he himself has already been helped since through this seventh step he has washed away the stains of this world. And so, you know, John doesn't mince words uh, ever. Uh, within the latter. And so it's, you know, very clearly tells us that truth. And again, in an unvarnished way, that as we come before God, you know, we are not going to be blamed, as it were, or held accountable for not performing great miracles in the world or for not being great theologians, being able to articulate the faith with great eloquence or, or not having uh, divine visions not experiencing the extraordinary in the spiritual life, that what God sees is the movement of, of the heart and the sorrow for one's sin and the desire for, for him that lies behind that, to, to be uh, immersed deeply in that love and to lead a God-pleasing life. And uh, so this you know, quickly, I think, puts into perspective all that we've labored to reflect upon here over these past weeks 
uh, in this step that often has been very difficult, but we are shown in these final words, I think, the importance and the value of it. In a similar way that uh, St. Isaac said that, you know, a person who is able to see his own sins is greater than he who can raise the dead. That the capacity to see one's the poverty of own, one's own sin is certainly uh, greater than the ability in a miraculous way to raise a person uh, to life. Because repentance uh, only can emerge when we are able to see our own poverty and so turn to God. And so similarly here, John is telling us you know, not to look for the extraordinary in the spiritual life. Uh, that we want to live uh, truthfully. And that means to live in the light of Christ and the light of the cross and to be able to see clearly what it is within our hearts that needs healing and, uh, and, and to turn to the things that bring that healing in our life. Any final comments about uh, these last couple of paragraphs or the step as a whole that anyone would like to add before we move on to the next? So along with the step on the prison and penitence, uh, the, this step has been one of the more challenging that we, we've read. Not that they aren't all uh, this way, but uh, in particular, I think, because it is so foreign, I think, in our age to think of such things, to weep over one's sin, and uh, to have this depth of contrition that one experiences it on a visceral level, um, uh, in a similar way that, you know, Christ sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, that when he feels the weight and the burden of the, the, the sin of the world, that one who experiences true sorrow for one's sin is going to experience it in, the, in a visceral fashion. You know, know this pain of heart that gives rise then to this flood of cleansing tears. And so we should not be surprised that such a, a thing exists and in fact should seek to foster it within our lives. Okay. So, uh, no questions, then we'll move on to step number eight. Oh, Kevin, go ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> just drawing a bit late and otherwise uh, not having necessarily been part of this before. I wanted to, well, when he talks about mourning, is, is, is that what that means? Like the sort of recognizing the poverty of one's sinfulness? Yes, you know, I think as we've gone through the step, it's and as certainly in the ones that preceded it, it is this acknowledgement of our own poverty and need for God's grace and mercy. And, um, and we see, you know, how difficult this is, uh, not, on, not only on the level that John is speaking of here in terms of the tears that flow in the face of it, but we see really from the gospel on how pride can become an impediment uh, to this kind of compunction. Uh, but I think that the difference that, uh, that we see from tears simply of sorrow here that we often experience as human beings. Uh, what we find in John's writing, which goes deeper than any of the other Desert Fathers, is that this sorrow leads ultimately to joy, that it leads to a kind of divine succor, uh, you know, a divine sweetness and comfort. As a child whimpering, he told us in its mother's arms, so we are drawn uh, into the embrace of the Father when we recognize our poverty and experience the flow of these tears in our lives. So it's this kind of compunction is not something that is meant to lead us into despair or despondency. In fact, John uh, explicitly has warned us against that, that ultimately it should give way uh, to the joy of communion. And uh, 
it's ultimately this is what we are seeking uh, in our spiritual life and why the ascetic life is seen as being imperative for us that uh, because it brings us to communion with God and allows us to enter into the things that God has given to us that draws us into the depth of that communion, the sacramental life. And, uh, and so we seek through the ascetic life to remove every impediment to the fullness of the life that God desires for us. And as human beings, uh, you know, all aspects of our, you know, ourselves are to be redeemed. And that includes that which is in the unconscious. Uh, in our little group here at the rectory on Saturday mornings, uh, we had just discussed the, 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 the father's understanding of the heart. And it was interesting. Uh, we were, were reading Anthony Conieres's, uh book, The Beginner's Introduction to the Philokalia. And he talks about it certainly involving our will, volition, our understanding, our capacity to comprehend the things of God through faith and desire, you know, our longing and love for him. But the heart is also, uh, he tells us, uh, equivalent to the unconscious. You know, for us as human beings, what we see is only the smallest part of ourselves and others. And so we seek to open ourselves and our hearts to God in the fullest measure in order that we might be healed uh, and that the, the darkest regions of our heart or that sin has closed off to us might experience the, the cleansing of God's grace. And certainly the gift of tears uh, allows for that to take place uh, in such a deep way that John described it earlier as a second baptism or even greater than baptism in a sense because it allows us to be drawn back into that relationship even though that uh, that radical union has been broken by our sin and so I can't go much further than that just because I'd be going back over the entire step again but that's the essence of his his vision uh, of tears and compunctions. Okay. All right. Step number eight on freedom from anger and on meekness. I've always loved reading the father's uh, description of meekness in particular, because I, I think in our day and age, we often see meekness as weakness, as being a doormat. And uh, whereas we see it here as strength, virtue, that uh, uh, allows love to touch an aspect of who we are as human beings uh, and in such a way that it allows it to be ordered and shaped by, uh, and shaped in such a way that is pleasing to God and that is healing. So anger, aggression, uh, which is a part of our, you know, our lives and certainly as we hear from the fathers, essential in the spiritual battle that the, if you remember, if we've talked about the insensitive faculty or the insensitive power that allows us to direct uh, a kind of anger or hatred towards sin or temptation. Uh, but sometimes this anger can be misdirected. This insensitive power can be misdirected towards others. And so we begin to see that the, the, the shaping of this gift that we have as human beings for the spiritual battle by love is essential, that it can be directed in the way that God desires. And so meekness, far from being weakness, is an incredible strength that allows us to be able to endure uh, so many things uh, uh, in this life, but also in our relationships with others uh, without directing towards them uh, equal or greater anger or insult that is often directed towards us. And anyone who's experienced that or struggled not to do that, to give, give back to somebody greater or a double dose of what they've given to us, uh, we, we begin to see the real value of meekness, meekness uh, when, when we also see the nature of that struggle. And so John begins... 
As the gradual pouring of water on a fire completely extinguishes the flame, so the tears of true mourning are able to quench every flame of anger and irritability. Therefore, we place this next in order. So it's a, quite a statement that you know, the tears of compunction, you know, the, the tears that flow from this awareness of our sin also quenches anger and all irritability, that when we do see our own poverty, that it allows us to see the poverty of others, but to look upon that with gentleness and understanding, that we realize that more often than not, it's due to the uh, temptations experienced from the demons or uh, that they struggle with the same poverty that we do in our own life. And so our capacity to weep for our own sins can dry up our anger towards others completely. Freedom from anger is an insatiable appetite for dishonor. Just as in the vainglorious, there is an unbounded desire for praise. Freedom from anger is victory over nature and insensibility to insults acquired by struggles and sweat. And so, you know, John makes it clear that this is no easy task and not for the faint of heart by sweat and struggle uh, and that we are being drawn into what is contrary to our sensibilities. There's part of us that wants to react uh, to what is said to us or what is done to us to resist it with an equal kind of force and with a willfulness rather than with love and trusting in, in the power of this self-emptying love that we see uh, in the cross and that we see in, in Christ himself. And so freedom from anger, he tells us, is an insatiable appetite for dishonor. And on the surface, that might sound like lunacy to us, that who has an insatiable desire for dishonor but I think when a person begins to see that there is a freedom that emerges on the other end of that, that uh, we are often so driven by the need to be loved, to be accepted, and that we are often fearful of being hated by others and or allowing them to be angry with us. And so our tendency is to move to the defensive position. Even if we don't strike back, we, we want to guard and protect our, our hearts. Whereas a person who has, been, has allowed this faculty within them to be shaped by love and transformed by love, uh, that there is a kind of freedom then and even a desire to experience that dishonor in order that one might become perfectly free, that whatever could be said or done is not going to move one to anger or aggression towards another or want to strike out against them. And, uh, you know, I think this is why, you know, the cross is always going to be a stumbling block. It's either a stepping stone for us that we see the love and the wisdom of God in it or it's going to be a stumbling block that we are going to see in this kind of unconditional love and to stretch one's arms out wide in embrace of the world, even though it hates us, uh, that we are either going to see the beauty in that or we're going to shrink back uh, in, in disgust or revulsion from it or fear of it. And I think it often is fear that is rooted, not, not even in pride at times, but I think, again, fear of being hated, that, that we want to meet at times the expectations of others uh, to such an extent that we are unwilling to hold fast to the, the path that Christ has set before us or, or hold fast simply to the, the path that he set us upon or to truth. And, uh, and so to bear with the insults or the anger of others. And so John is telling us here, 
until we have the same kind of insatiable desire uh, for this dishonor as the vainglorious person has to be seen by others in, the, in this great light as being somehow special, we aren't going to be free. We're always going to be driven by what others are thinking about us or what we imagine even they are thinking about us. And so we've already come across so many different stories within the latter and the Evergatinos of those who have lived this on a heroic level. And we see the path that uh, has taken them there and it's not an easy one. And so John is right in saying, you know, that this is, comes through great struggle and with great sweat where we are stretched to the breaking point and we see that, that place where we do draw the line, where our, our love or our patience is conditional and that we will say this far, no more, I've had enough. And, uh, and in the Evergatinos on Monday, we saw, you know, a very good example of that. And, uh, you know, the monk who was a, her he was a hermit and wanted to come and be perfected by the obedience of living in the monastery and being under the authority of the role of the abbot and others. And he is a struggler and he's recognized as a struggler by the abbot as one seeking to live in perfection. And so he's drawn along, but he's tested, you know, by all these different experiences uh, but in, in the end, he wants, he, you know, after being tested in this heroic fashion, he, uh, he's picking the lice off of himself one day and basically says, I've had enough. You know, I want to go back where I felt that I was living this holy life and indeed was on a certain level. And it's then you know, that he comes to experience uh, and have satisfied what he desired. You know, the perfection of living in that obedience, of setting aside his own will uh, in, in a Christ-like way. And, you know, to have the meekness of Christ is not something that we can bring about simply by our own efforts or our own will. We can cultivate the soil of our hearts, you know, through the ascetic life, through our, you know, the sacramental life, meditating upon the scriptures. But ultimately, it's something that we have to be drawn into by Christ himself. And again, this is why John wants us to be prepared that, uh, that what we are seeking and what we are desiring is what we see in Christ not a worldly view of meekness or what we would see in our judgment as meekness, but what we see in Christ himself, that he is the standard. And so in paragraph three, he begins to define it more clearly for us. Meekness is an immovable state of soul, which remains unaffected, whether in evil report or in good report, in dishonor, or in praise. So it's interesting. It's a kind of freedom in both directions. And we often wouldn't think of meekness in this fashion, uh, that when praised, that we would be equally unmoved by it. Uh, not that we wouldn't see, you know, the charity of another person or their, their love for us in saying good or kind things or praising us but unaffected in the sense that we embrace the illusion of that, you know, the image that another is projecting out onto us, that we know the truth, that we are sustained by the mercy of God, and we know our, the poverty of our sin, and, and even the, the greatness of that sin on a daily basis. And so meekness here for us has to be letting go of this illusion uh, that would allow us to uh, embrace what is projected out onto us, even in a positive way, that we can be put on a pedestal uh, and we have to res resist both things, 
being put on a pedestal and then being undone when we're knocked off of that pedestal. And, uh, and so the love of God has to free us from holding on to self-esteem in either way, you know, when it's elevated beyond reality or when it's diminished. Any comments or thoughts about any of this so far? That last saying is startling because it, it means there has to be a kind of vigilance there and uh, over our hearts. And uh, to be praised sometimes can be even more difficult than to be criticized, that there's a part of us that can crave it and uh, crave that image and uh, not, not to, you know, to take things with a grain of salt, you know, can be important in the spiritual life. The beginning of freedom from anger is silence of the lips when the heart is agitated. The middle is silence of the thoughts when there is a mere disturbance of soul. And the end is an imperturbable calm under the breath of unclean winds. And so great, the path is laid out for us that, you know, what is expected perhaps in the beginning is simply that we're able to keep our mouths closed, that we don't give back in kind to what is said to us. And so our, our hearts might be highly agitated by an insult that someone gives to us, but we restrain ourselves. Again, not to give it back, you know, with double barrels. Uh, to give back in excess, that we remain silent. And, uh, you know, again, the, even this can be hard for us because there's part of us that wants to protect our honor or the truth, and uh, such as it is in our own eyes. And, uh, and there, you know, that argument justifies a lot of different things that we do in the world. Uh, you know, the, the protection of the honor of God. Uh, I think I've told the story here about St. Ignatius of Loyola. You know, after his conversion, he met uh, a Muslim along the road, and they had a discussion about Mary, and the individual insulted Mary. And Ignatius was infuriated by it. And they were coming up on the road to a town where the road split off. And so Ignatius says to himself, I'm going to let the ass that I'm riding make the decision for me. If, you know, if the ass goes into the town where this uh, Muslim went, I'm going to kill him. Uh, and if, uh, you know, if I continue down the road, then not. And, and, you know, sort of the joke is that the ass had greater sensibility sensibilities than, than Ignatius did at that point in his spiritual life, that thankfully, you know, the, uh, it kept moving down the road and protect him from committing murder. And, uh, and so, you know, the first step for us is, you know, to, you know, take hold of that impulsive aspect within us and that that arises out of our defensiveness to keep our our mouths closed the middle is then uh to silence the thoughts when there's this disturbance so you know through unceasing prayer and our capacity then to set aside the thoughts that come to us as temptation including the temptation to anger that through this constancy in prayer, that we are able th then to just to let it be a disturbance that passes by, but we don't take hold of it. And then finally, an imperturbable calm under the breath of unclean winds. And so a heart that is not moved by what others say or do, that a heart that is so formed that it only has the capacity to love and to forgive and to have mercy that is truly conformed to that of Christ.
again, this is one of those things that we might only know by its opposite. You know, we know a heart that is perturbed and what that looks like. And I think coming to understand an imperturbable heart is, might be a bit of a stretch for us. Number five, wrath is a reminder of hidden hatred. That is to say, remembrance of wrongs. Wrath is a desire for the injury of one who has provoked you. Irascibility is the untimely blazing up of the heart. Bitterness is a movement of displeasure seated in the soul. Anger is an easily changeable movement of one's disposition and disfiguration of the soul. So interesting little distinctions here that, that John makes for us that I think are actually very helpful. You know, that our anger can reach a certain level where it becomes wrath, where we actually want to injure the other and cause them harm, make them feel the pain that we feel, and again, maybe more. And so to cause them you know, emotional or physical injury, or what I just described about St. Ignatius, you know, even feeling murderous feelings within the heart, irascibility, this untimely blazing up of the heart. So in, if we aren't vigilant, if we aren't guarding our heart through the day and constantly calling out to the Lord, you know, something in uh, an atom of a moment can happen or, you know, be said, or our dog can do something <laughs> that uh, leads us to this, you know, uh, swift blazing up, as he tells us, of the heart, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, we come across something that is inconvenient and we lose it. Uh, and it, it flames up, it might go out quickly, but nonetheless, uh, being caught off guard and not living in the peace of Christ uh, can then lead to these moments where, where we lash out. Even at a wonderful little puppy, you know, that just happens to tear things apart or, <laughs> or ruin the screen door or something along those lines. Uh, bitterness uh, is a movement of displeasure seated in the soul. And that's sort of interested, interesting way of putting it. You know, bitterness is, you have a sense from what John, how John is describing it, that is more deeply rooted. And that has been something that has been allowed to become something that has taken root over the course of time. Uh, a movement of displeasure seated in the soul, so deep within us that we hold on to these remembrance of wrongs and, uh, and cannot let them go. And so we lose uh, kind of volition, uh, the, the will then not to become angry at a particular individual because we, we've allowed this, our anger to become so deeply rooted. And so it, become, it becomes this bitterness that, that becomes the lens through which we view certain individuals, it colors our interactions with them and conversations. And e even the most benign of things uh, can take on uh, this color of irritation for us. Uh, you know, so if we're in a relationship over the course of time where there is bad blood uh, or, you know, where there has been great wounds uh, that have been inflicted upon us, that it, that can, if we're not careful, it can begin to shape everything. And, you know, I don't think John is suggesting or that or certainly I would not be suggesting that, uh, you know, that wounds, you know, through, you know, abuse that, have, that we've endured uh, would be ignored or not be experienced. Uh, but it also can poison our hearts. 
and not only shape the way that we interact with other with certain individuals who've uh, afflicted us, but it can affect the way then that we view the world and that we view others as a whole. And so we don't want to let anger uh, or this wrath that he speaks of become so deeply rooted within us that then it becomes the way that we view everything. So it becomes like the, you know, the individual who has the log in their eye sees logs everywhere, you know, and, you know, when it's really a splinter in the other's eye, other's eye, it's what, what the person is seeing is the log in their own eye because everywhere they look, they see that log. And so if our hearts are filled with bitterness, if that log is bitterness, then we're, everybody's going to be a source of irritation for us. It's not hard to get there, you know, and we, we can't be fooled that somehow this is beyond us. You know, I think there are things that can happen in our life that can cultivate that. Angela. You have to unmute yourself. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about Jesus um, making a, a cord whipping uh, and going into the temple uh, angry or in anger or about the injustice that was occurring there. And um, I, I'm just thinking also of Thomas Aquinas, who I remember uh, reading him where he said that failing to get angry is acquiescing. Um, and, 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 and committing that unjust act in just the same way by failing to respond. And that there is a place for anger. Right. Uh, most certainly, you know, I think anger as an emotion in particular is often a good indicator. It reveals a certain truth to us often, in particular injustice. And uh, that then would lead us through our understanding and, uh, and even through faith as well, you know, our comprehension of what's going on there to intervene or especially on the part of another. Uh, but, you know, what John is talking about here are, you know, what go is what goes on in the, in the heart that is not free from one passions where there's a lack of perfection. And so that anger that insensitive faculty that I discussed, or I think what you're discussing with uh, about from, you know, Thomas, that, you know, it has its purpose and a very important purpose for us. Uh, you know, in particular, this injustice against God, you know, to commit when we see a temptation coming and that we would want to strike it down and that we would have a hatred for sin and for the temptations that would come to us in order that we would swiftly uh, seek to uproot it. Uh, the problem is, is that in our imperfection and when we are driven by the passion of, of anger, you know, so when this faculty and when the anger, the emotion of anger has been touched by sin, it becomes misdirected and uh, and directed often towards others. So this insensitive faculty that is given to us to help purify the heart and to help uh, us struggle against sin often can be redirected towards others where we see their sin and weakness and we look for the chinks in their armor and, and, and direct that anger towards them. Or do, as I said, like Ignatius did, you know, defending the honor of Mary. So I'm going to murder, you know, uh, 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 another human, human being. And, you know, when we think of Christ in the temple, this is often used as an example, I think, uh, and uh, rationalization for people. You know, we are talking about Christ himself, you know, the perfection of love and what was going on there was an extraordinary injustice and but also a sin against god against piety that they had turned the temple which was to be uh, a place in house of prayer into a den of thieves and in particular the court of the the gentiles 
that you know the temple wasn't restricted to only the Jews that you know, the Gentiles would come could come there as well it was a holy place and but what Christ saw going on especially during the pilgrimages to Jerusalem and to the temple is that people would come to offer sacrifice in in the temple you know of uh, of a lamb or as we hear of Joseph and Mary uh, a, a couple of doves uh, or that could be offered as well but what was going on in the temple at that point was the fleecing of the poor that the temple had its own currency and so people coming from all over the place would have to exchange their coinage for the coinage of the temple and of course that was done at a rate where it benefited those in the temple but took advantage of the poor so they would have to give a certain amount of money and would receive less in return in order that also they could purchase the lamb for example of sacrifice that had to be unblemished at this exorbitant price so not only were they fleeced in the exchange of money but in the purchase uh, they're coming there to worship God and to pray and they're being taken advantage of by these money changers and those who are sellers and Christ sees this happening you know that uh it, the, the they were to be a light to the nations and what was taking place was just the opposite that the the poor were being taken advantage of but also instead of uh allowing the temple to be a place of prayer and worship of god they had turned it into uh, a marketplace but a disreputable one at that yeah. and so in his love you know he sees the injustice of it and uh you know it was prophesied that the messiah would also cleanse the temple you know from any impurity too in his coming and so symbolically i think this is what was so striking about it and why he's questioned by his own disciples about it that you know what is the meaning of, of this action of what you just did because you're going to bring down upon yourself the wrath of others but part of what is taking place there is a revelation a drawing back of the veil of his identity of God coming into his temple and so this event has far more meaning uh, than we have you know it arises out of uh, you know the pure heart of Christ a heart of love a love for the poor uh, but also a manifestation of of who he is and what he's come to accomplish I'm thinking that for some reason, listening to what you're saying, um, I'm reminded of um, the statement in Matthew, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Mm -hmm. And part of me feels from my own experience where very often I haven't spoken up against injustice mm -hmm. more out of a failure of courage where I have felt bad afterwards and I knew that I should have spoken up but I didn't is an imperfection rather than you know it's almost like you can spiritualize away the difficulty of life sometimes and and then think you're doing the right thing that's right prudence can often be an excuse for a lack of courage you're absolutely right but I think there's an order to how John presents things to us for a reason. You know, often this produces this within one's life. You know, either, you know, vice gives birth to other vices or virtues, you know, uh, become, you know, give birth to other virtues. And so he's leading us along this path that, you know, where does one have this freedom, you know, and how, how does one love while being anger and express that anger if one's heart is not has not been purified if there is no meekness there if that anger if has not been touched 
by the love of God, by the grace of God. And so this is where John is leading us, you know, that we would, would understand that. Ashley quoted here from scripture, be angry and, and, not, and sin not. What often comes to mind is James saying that the anger of man does not bear fruit acceptable to God. I think that's James. I'm sorry if I, I have the, uh, now that she mentioned, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little befuddled there. It's either James or John, but the anger of man does not bear fruit that is acceptable to God, that our anger, often again, driven by our passions or our own wants and desires and our, our by self-esteem or vainglory does not bear fruit that is acceptable to God, that it's often destructive to or feeds our pride. You know, the anger that is able to be acted upon, you know, responded to is, arises out of a, a heart that has been purified and an anger that has been purified by, my, by meek, meekness and love. So Christ can express this anger. He can overturn the temples. He can make a wimp and drive them out. Because, you know, what is desired there is not their destruction, but rather conversion, you know, and their salvation. That there's a real jeopardy there, that they're taking advantage of the poor and, uh, and the poor who are coming to worship God. And so there's, there's a kind of great blasphemy and, and sin against charity that is taking place here. But, you know, I don't think we can have that confidence. You're, I, you're absolutely right. You know, again, prudence can keep us from saying and doing the things that we should do in love. But uh, to be able to do that without it becoming destructive, we, we have to have engaged in the spiritual life in such a way that our hearts have been formed and shaped by the grace of God. Great, great question, though, because I think there can be a skewed reading of this, and I think that's why often there is this reaction to it, and and why you know, I prefaced it by saying, you know, meekness is not being milk toast, it's not being uh, a doormat, you know, this is not what Christ is talking about. Nobody would think of the meekness of Christ as weakness. You know, in it, we see the, the power and the love of God made manifest, and it brings about our, the redemption of the world. And uh, it's often hard for us to suspend our judgment long enough to meditate upon that truth. And so we, want, we have to see something even like, even such as anger in the face of injustice in light of the cross in light of what God has revealed to us in his son. Okay. Uh, Ambrose writes, how can one take a fire to his bosom and not be burned? What are you referring to here again, just so I can... That's a somewhat paraphrasing of a, a line in Proverbs. It's talking about in that context less, but it's, you know, because they're both similar in terms of being passions, the danger seems to be the same, you know, that if we sort of coddle and allow anger, then most of us, as you were just saying, won't be able to make that in a holy way and it will end up burning us. Right. Yeah, it has to be the purifying fire of God's grace, you know, not the the you know the flame if you will of you know irascibility that he des describes here that you know rises up very quickly you know that's always going to be something that's destructive and we'll burn ourselves and others and uh but the, the purifying flame of the love of love of god is what allows us to see with a kind of clarity uh megan uh responds here uh is it like god's 
Christ's expression of anger are always intended toward repentance, not punishment, opportunities of awakening, not retributive, always pathways toward salvation, not justice or closure. Ours tend to be mixed and partial expressions. Yeah, I would say it's always shaped by, by love. And I think this is what John is trying to teach us here, that uh, because of our, our sin, that there's a distortion in our vision, in our experience of the things of this world and the way that we view others, and especially when I think they wound or afflict us or insult us. And so it's the love of God that purifies our capacity even to address and deal with injustice or sin within the world. And we see in Christ again what that looks like. You know, arms stretched out in embrace on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That again, the standard for us here is divine love and divine meekness. And this is where, you know, I've often cautioned, we really have to allow the fathers, not that we would have objections to things or feel unsettled by it, but allow ourselves to be drawn along because what we're being drawn into, as we saw in the previous step, is uh, the experience of the divine. And so the mourning that we discussed, as painful as that was to read and to hear about and in regards to the experience of others who experienced it, who went through it, that ultimately it drew them into an experience of divine comfort and the, uh, the peace of knowing oneself as loved and forgiven uh, that we cannot create for ourselves. And similarly here, what is being described is a kind of perfection in love that touches even our anger, you know, a part uh, of us that is, uh, is very concrete and tangible and visceral, that it's allowing that to be touched by the, the love of God uh, in such a way that it might be hard for us to recognize or even imagine. And... Uh, and so I think if, you know, as we start reading through this, and we're re really at the beginning of his simply defining it for us, which is what he does, he defines it and gives us multiples, Ill illustrative stories of it, and then wraps things up. I think if we did not feel a kind of discomfort, there'd probably be something wrong with us, you know, because I don't think we can read this without feeling something pierce our hearts. And, uh, and we have to allow that to happen. But if we can suspend judgment uh, and allow ourselves to be drawn along, I think the, the rest of the step will op open, open our eyes to why he's talking about things in the way that he is. Okay. Uh, maybe we'll just do one, one more since we're drawing close to the end here. As with the appearance of light, darkness retreats so at the fragrance of humility all anger and bitterness vanishes so it's a powerful thing that you know with light darkness retreats and so where, where there's humility you know the this kind of anger that that flashes up very quickly or affects the way that we view others and look upon others Begin, this begins to retreat and we're able to see and comprehend a greater truth, not only about love, the love that we're called to and the mercy that we're called to, but the solidarity that exists between ourselves and others in the poverty of our sin that softens and can only soften our heart towards them. And so where there is humility, where there is truthful living, then immediately our hearts begin to soften and in the way that they we experience others even when they insult us or afflict us so humility the mother of the virtues
So that, that brings us to 8.30. I know it's a lot, even in a, in a few, I mean, we just went through six uh, little sayings here, but already there's a lot there. So I'd go, go back over it, allow yourself to think about what he's saying here. And, uh, uh, but as always, we'll take our time as we make our way through it. Okay, any final comments or questions before we wrap, wrap up for the evening? Okay. Well, thank you all. Again, wonderful comments, questions. And when we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be On earth it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks.